0: Hello, my name is Claire Heffron and welcome to the Geneva Centre for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues, advancing peace, security and international cooperation. November 11 marked the 101st anniversary of the signing of the Armistice on the Western Front, ending the hostilities of the First World War. We spoke to Dr Paul Valle, a lecturer in European, American and Russian history, And we also spoke to Ambassador Jean-Marc Bolgaris, former Deputy Secretary of State for Switzerland, who both share about centennial lessons, peacemaking since the First World War. Both gentlemen are Associate Fellows with the Global Fellowship Initiative at the GCSP. Dr Paul Valet, a historian with the Global Fellowship Initiative, shared with us the lessons learned from the idealism of the peacemaking process. Firstly, what were the circumstances and who were the principal actors of the mediation
1: The uh, peacemaking uh, that takes place between 1918 and 1923 occurs under very specific circumstances and uh, particular characteristics that really explain the outcome and the criticism that has been leveled on a historical uh, point of view to uh, this peacemaking. The first characteristic uh, is the fact that uh, the uh, hostilities were halted uh, by an armistice, which is a military convention for a uh, standstill that preceded the peace negotiations leading to uh, the treaty. What we know is, in fact, that there was a string of armistices in the end of uh, 1918, in fact, four separate ones. And the one on November 11th was the final one, which halted the hostilities on the uh, uh, Belgian and uh, French so-called Western Front. There is a fact that uh, each of these armistices was requested by the Central Powers from the Allies, um, uh, each acting separately, and it's really being faced with the desertion of its allies and the prospect of a revolution breaking out at home that convinced Germany to finally sign uh, the armistice on uh, November 11th.
0: What was their responsibility in the outcome?
1: What then came as a nasty shock was that the fact that the uh, German military as well as the uh, German society uh, and political leadership had not yet uh, admitted the uh, reality of their losing the war and of being under the uh, threat of invasion by the allied armies. So when the allies then proceeded to ask for very harsh military terms and harsh peace terms in the negotiations that came in uh, as a very nasty surprise.
0: And who were the main negotiators?
1: Uh, For the first time in diplomatic history, the main negotiators were the uh, heads of government and heads of state.
0: How did civil-military relations and nationalism impact on the peacemaking process?
1: What we were seeing uh, was the fact, fact that the armistice itself preceded uh, the peace uh, negotiations uh, and the armistice being a military uh, convention to halt hostilities, that gave paradoxically the military uh, and the military factor an added weight uh, into the uh, peacemaking uh, process uh, as well. The, allies began uh, by asking in their armistice terms of November 1918 for a number of military guarantees that really transformed not just the situation on the front, but gave them the leading military advantage. And the fact that they were allowed to advance up to the Rhineland, the German army had to pull out from all of its occupied territories in France and Belgium, that uh, really uh, obviously uh, was something that turned uh, what was the unacknowledged defeat of the Germans in the fall of 1918 uh, into a military defeat, uh, and military and political defeat as a whole. The second aspect was that then the um, Allied military commanders were also able to stress to the civilian leaders who were uh, conducting the peace negotiations uh, the fact that there was a uh, necessary emphasis to place on military guarantees to prevent the uh, uh, hostilities from breaking out again uh, in the ensuing decades. And this was of course only natural given the enormous human and military toll uh, of the past. Uh, four years uh, but the results uh, obviously uh, were perhaps much harsher terms than what had uh, been expected in the original uh, by the civilian uh, negotiating teams and uh, of course from the German point of view that even turned the uh, situation of being imposed peace terms uh, even uh, more uh, sour by refusing to accept this uh, political and military defeat the German army itself played a very crucial role in creating a latent desire for revenge and the preservation of nationalism in Germany for the years to come. What also, of course, uh, occurred for the uh, other countries in Central uh, and Central and Eastern Europe in particular, the uh, borders that were created as a result of the peace settlements created a number of uh, new nations, uh, nation states uh, as well uh, in Europe. That too was, of course, a factor to rather reinforce nationalism in Europe rather than uh, abate it. And this, of course, offered a poor prospect for reconciliation in the future years. What
0: elements of idealism of the peacemakers in 1918 survives in today's international politics?
1: This idealism uh somewhat survives in the fact that it was corrected after 1945 by the uh, putting in place of the United Nations system. Uh, That was very much aimed at taking stock of some of the mistakes that had been observed in the peacemaking uh, of the uh, period following the First World War uh, and the unsuccessful experiment with the League of Nations uh, between uh, the two World Wars. Uh, What also of course uh, survives uh, is uh, the fact that there is an approach to towards uh, conducting uh, diplomacy in international relations in a very novel way through uh, multilateral multilateral forums, which in many ways, even if uh, some of them get critiqued Uh, nowadays, uh, they have uh, broadened the uh, scope in which uh, traditional international relations are uh, conducted and it's really remarkable up to this day to uh, see the range uh, of issues uh, that go much beyond the preservation of the peace and disarmament. Uh, They uh, deal with economics, uh, trade, finance, human welfare, health, the sea, agricultural production, telecommunications and uh, all of uh, these um, uh, issues have materialized themselves in the broadening of United Nations and international agencies, a great many of them, of course, are, still have their seat uh, in Geneva. That is a very physical manifestation that we have here in Geneva uh, of the uh, survival uh, of uh, this idealism.
0: Earlier, we spoke to Ambassador Jean Marc Bolgaris, who is the former Deputy Secretary of State for Switzerland and Associate Fellow with the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. What lessons can we learn from the peacemaking process that followed the armistice of 11 November 1918?
2: This is a very tricky question, but I think it enables people, when we think about this event, that we were confronted with a situation where one had to choose between two paths. The first path would have been the old fashion of solving conflicts in antiquity via victis. Or one could have followed the path which Churchill recommended in his World War Two memoirs, which is in victory magnanimity. And one were just in between. There was one aspect of these negotiations which were really the antique way, via victis. Germany having nothing to say in the discussion, having to take the text as, which had been agreed between, between the victorious persons, and the Germans called it then a diktat. That is, it had been dictated to them. They had not participated in the negotiation.
0: Does some of the criticism leveled during the 1918-1923 negotiating process reflect contemporary problems in peacemaking today?
2: Some way, yes. In the sense that there is, as before, a special role for the big guys. If you take the example of the conference of Dayton, which ended the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you can see that the Americans decided to have this conference on a military base, where the participants from Bosnia, the three parts of the Bosnian population, the Bosniaks, the Serbs and the Croats, were put into a kind of uh, no man's land with no practically no contact with the, with the journalists, with the press, so there, there were no leaks and this enabled the conference to come to a conclusion.
0: Was the peacemaking process a turning point for Switzerland's diplomacy? In
2: 1815 in the Congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon, the Swiss neutrality was anchored into the international law. And in 1919, the Swiss had to take a decision about joining the League of Nations. But by joining the League of Nations, in principle, they should have dropped all their neutrality policy. They negotiated in order to get a special deal, which they got. Military neutrality but no economic neutrality. That is to say, when there were sanctions to be applied against a a member of the League of Nations which were not respecting the decisions of the League, then Switzerland should uh, also apply sanctions. This was, of course, a very big point in Switzerland. There was a big discussion and there was a vote. And there was a vote which was positive in favour of joining the League, but a very narrow margin, practically the same margin as we had in in 2002, that is to say 80 years later, by joining the United Nations.
0: Why does the Geneva Centre for Security Policy play an important role today? Does its work reflect a turning point?
2: GCPSP is just doing what was asked for by the Geneva government in 1919, that is to say, to contribute to the success of the international community. And it plays a very important role.
0: Well, that's all for today's podcast for the GCSP. Thanks for listening and thank you to Dr. Paul Vallee for joining us, along with Ambassador Jean-Marc Bulgaris, Join us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Until then, bye for now.